0: Alright, kiddos, here we go. Seminars, February 4th through the 6th with a couple spots left. After that, April 1st through the 3rd, and then June 3rd through the 5th. For camps coming up, we just added a self-sufficient lifter camp for March 19th in Wichita Falls. Then, of course, our new lift-shoot-fight camp. That's a two-day camp over April 30th to May 1st, covering the lifts, covering shooting, and, of course, pajama wrestling. At the time of this recording, we still have some spots left for the squat camp in Oklahoma City on January 29th with vanilla gorilla Chase Lindley. Then we've added a couple new squat and deadlift camps to the list, Austin, Texas at Starting Strength Austin on March 20th, and then March 26th in Moodis, Connecticut at Anino Strength and Conditioning. Speaking of gyms, Starting Strength gyms continue to run along on all eight cylinders, but we need coaches to continue to fuel it. So if you've ever thought about coaching the barbell lifts professionally, head over to startingstrengthgyms.com, check out the coaching tab, fill out the form, and spend some time talking to my friend Ina about all the opportunities that we have coming up.
1: From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas. From the finest mind in the modern fitness industry. The one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession. The most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, Starting Strength Radio Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. Uh, We're going to have some fun this week. We're here with our buddy John Musser. And uh, we're going to talk about movies again. And, uh, uh, John, why do I tell everybody why I keep asking you to be on the movie show with us?
2: When uh, uh, 20, 30 years ago, when I went into protection, I did, uh, I protected, uh, businessmen first. And then, uh, and then, uh, I went into, to work celebrities and uh, a position was then is that I'm not in the movie business. I'm not in the music business. I am in the protection business, so I don't need to know anything about what's going on around me. And that's absolutely wrong, right? To protect somebody, you got to know the environment that you're working in. So I had to, to spend some time learning the environment. When I first went to, to protect uh, one of the first celebrities, I didn't know what they looked like. I had to go and rent a VHS tape and watch them to see what they looked like so they know what they looked like. Um, <laughs> so I was, around, I was around a bunch of productions and uh, more so as an outsider, right? Because I've got, I've got a particular job to do. So I get to see everybody else do their jobs to a degree and it's always from the perspective of an outsider. It's not the insider. So when you see a guy rig up a car with a camera, that's gonna be driving down the road, you find that very interesting, right? Because it's not something that you see somebody do every day. So I've got some, I did that for maybe 15 years or so, I was around that industry. So I've got some insight into that. And
1: industry, uh, John and I've I have had conversations about this for a, a long time and he's got some interesting stories and he's uh, worked for people that uh, whose names you certainly know and uh, we're not going to talk about that today because that's a matter of professional courtesy and we're not going to even ask him about that but what I wanted you guys to know is that John knows what the fuck he's talking about when he talks about movie sets and how directors work and what the producer does and how the shots are framed and and all of the stuff all the inside stuff that you have to be there on the set to understand. And, uh, and I have, over the past several shows we've done with John, I've found his perspective to be very valuable in, in, in this context, and I think you probably have too. So what we're going to do today is uh, we're going to talk about one of my favorite types of movies, and we're just going to call this the sword movie podcast all right and uh i guess first off what we ought to talk about is what is a sword movie all right now i'll go ahead and tell you the five sword movies we're going to talk about today so you can kind of be processing this we're going to talk about ridley scott's kingdom of heaven we're going to talk about the three musketeers salkins version of the three musketeers directed by richard lester we're going to talk about Rob Roy uh, from 1995 uh, said in Scotland, we're going to talk about The Thirteenth Warrior. Uh, Michael Crichton's novel turned into a, a, a very good movie that everybody hated except me. And The Seven Samurai, the cl- most classic sword movie of all. We're going to talk about The Seven Samurai. So those are the five... Uh, of our those are our top five sword movies that we're going to talk about today and i'm not assigning these in any particular order i'll let you do that but this is uh this is kind of to get your mind working along the the lines that that ours are um these are
2: our sword movies john what do you think a sword movie is so to me a sword movie is it's going to have to have a degree of realistic fight scenes, yes. something you could see happening, even if they play it up. I was, I, I was helping an actor train one time and, and I would say I, I wasn't hired to train him, but I was helping him with a particular thing. And he said, uh, he said, it's got to look good on film. So, so keep that in mind. Whenever you watch one of these things, it's easy to get wrapped up in. Yeah, but that would never work. Well, that's, cute but if it doesn't look going on film nobody's going to care about it does that make sense
1: right we're not here to kill the other actor no we're, we're because to, that's not what, <laughs> that's not that's what we do we're here to make it look like we're going to kill the other actor without actually killing him because that's too damned expensive so so
2: lord uh, movies like we you and i grew up you're not much older than me we grew up when everybody had at least one pocket knife in their pocket from the time, the earliest time you can remember walking around as a kid, you had a knife in your pocket. Sure. And then at some point you graduated to a a buck knife in that case, or it might've been a craftsman knife or something that you wore that little case on your side, right? That folding knife Mm -hmm. on your side. And then you had a pen knife and then you might've changed from there. But so for when people talk about not allowing people to have a pocket knife, it's insanity to us we don't know I, we don't know anybody that doesn't carry a pocket knife,
1: that's right? why I'm not going back to the UK right I right. have no interest in being in a in a country that won't let me carry my fucking pocket knife that's just that's just absurd
2: Sand. I might need yeah. to cut something yeah. piece of cheese yeah. or something you know I, you yeah know. yeah so the sword movies to me I like all different types of swords I like looking at them I like uh you know I've played around with them to a degree. So the sword has to be the 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 weapon of choice of the guy, right? It has to be a priority weapon of choice. So right. when you look at Seven Samurai, they had muskets, but you only saw the muskets a couple times. Yeah, there
1: were years. three muskets in the movie.
2: Yes, yeah, three. three. So, and you
1: did the and, primary combat, primary combat was swordsmanship and swordsmanship. and and okay. the the Beer. muskets were incidental to the story, but central <laughs> yeah. to the story. In a sword movie, central to the conflict, as the conflict is engaged in in the movie, must be swords. Yep. So this means that a sword movie is essentially a period piece, or uh, in the in the case of a movie like The Duelists, which is a the, in fact Ridley Scott's first movie. Um, uh, th- this is set during uh, the Napoleonic Wars, and obviously there were firearms available, but the 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 plot of that particular movie was these two guys had gotten crossways with each other, and for 25 years they were fighting duels with swords. So the right. duelists is a sword movie. Sword movie. Because the oh. primary weapons involved in the conflict were swords. Now uh, I've got some background in this. I fenced for. Uh, about twenty years i 've actually been to a tournament and uh, entered epe in uh, in tournament fighting and uh, it's uh, it 's an interest of mine that i 've had for all my life i 've got several very nice swords that i 've accumulated over the years this in front of me here is a is a nice sword it 's not an expensive sword it 's a World War two era uh, military issue uh sword i it it looks like a katana but technically it's not a katana because the blade is a is a single piece of steel and it wasn't manufactured in the way a katana is manufactured and uh and so it's a it's a cheap copy of a of a katana but it was made back in the 1930s and 40s and was carried in world war ii it's an actual weapon it is sharp Mm -hmm. and this is the it stays by my bed just because i'd like it there and um and you know i fenced for years i'm too old and beat up and crippled now i can't fence so uh i uh but i still have my swords and it's uh, one
2: things it's interesting from a from uh you when you look at something like fencing you you can look at it from a from actual sword fighting perspective or you can look at it also as as an art right it's a it's, I mean, a, it, it's, it's a
1: sport art. in and of itself it's it's not really <laughs> yeah modern fencing in the olympic sense is is not practiced as a martial art now there are people who do fencing that practice it as a martial art and uh, carryover
2: skills there's some carryover there skills, are some but there is some over, overlap yes yeah Yeah, yeah.
1: but the closest to actual martial art fencing in in modern sport fencing is épée, and uh, there's three weapons: there's the foil, the épée, and the saber. And uh, the foil is a highly structured, stylized dance, basically. Uh, Saber, a little less so, but the épée bears the most resemblance to actual fighting. Uh, it's a point weapon. The foil is only a point weapon. The saber uses the edge and the point. And uh the uh but the épée is the is the is the closest to a uh, to a, a sword fight that you can have in modern sport fencing. Now they have a they have a discipline called classical fencing that that is pursued by the hard-headed guys that actually want fencing to be a martial art, and uh, last time I looked into that, there weren't a lot of people doing it.
2: It's not a lot of people doing it, um, no. and you got to travel to do it, and then you got to find the right guys to do it with. Right, and it's it's just like any finding any other art where you got somebody where you got a potential to get hurt. Right, finding the right people to train with is a pain in ass. Oh yeah,
1: well um, oh, yeah, uh, you can get hurt in sport fencing. I know a friend of mine's dad fenced a long time ago back in the 1940s and he witnessed a guy get killed with a foil blade one time that'd be uh, annoying foil blade broke uh in a thrust to the helmet penetrated the uh mesh the heavy mesh on the helmet huh? and uh, went into the guy's eye and killed him just killed him better than fuck right there in the on the peace day
2: there's a uh, it was, there's a uh, it happened there, you know there's a tv show called forged in fire and it's been on for about eight or nine seasons and when these guys first started testing these blades that they would make they would beat the shit out of stuff with them and the blades would break off and everything and as the series has progressed you could see that the padding and the equipment and the protection that they put around their throat and their wrists has increased as well too well that's intelligent <laughs> you, you break a damn blade off beaten on an anvil or a bar part that, it can happen, right. that
1: can happen that can happen in the middle of a fight and it has for yeah. since swords were invented you know swords have broken when you didn't want them to do that so uh, it's a yeah it's a, it's it's an amazing thing so I bring a little bit of, of that kind of experience to this discussion and in in fact that that discussion That experience I've had influences my um, uh, choice of these of these five movies that we're going to talk about and one of the things that three of these movies have in common is William Hobbs now William Hobbs was the fight choreographer for uh, the Three Musketeers which we'll talk about in a little while Uh, he's still around no he died in 2018 and uh, he was the fight choreographer for Rob Roy, which was nineteen ninety five, and for the Thirteenth Warrior. And Bill Hobbs was uh, was a was an expert swordsman himself, but but I've read his book about fight choreography, and his primary emphasis was in as we talked about earlier, making the fight look like a fight while not being a fight because if it's a fight then motherfuckers get killed and you you can't have that and uh you can get hurt you can get hurt you can't hurt your actors because if you hurt your actors they can't finish the shoot and so if you
2: see a film if you see a film that's shot up like when they do the cut scene things in a movie and it's cutting all around so quickly to me, that's an indicator of poor choreography, right? Yes, it is back and forth. So one of the things when you go to work on a movie set, the, you're told a couple of things right off the damn bat. One of them is don't get caught in the shot, right? So when that camera is rolling, don't be anywhere where that camera can see you. Right? So so when you're looking at a fight scene that they're filming and the, and, the, and the camera's panning all around and maybe it's on a track and it's rolling or maybe it's a steady cam on some guy's shoulder, uh, you have to find a place that you can't get, that you're not gonna get in that shot, right? Right. A couple of the other rules are, don't be in the actor's eye line. So if you're delivering a line and you look over that actor's shoulder, you don't want to see, see me over staring at you, right? Don't get in right. the eye line, stuff like that. That's a right. couple of the business right? And so these are just
1: should, general instructions for everyone on the set, right?
2: Yes. And they all know it already. And if you come on board and you're not around the film industry, you don't know that already, right?
1: Mm-hmm. So,
2: one of the things I used to do is uh, uh, find a big piece of equipment that's obviously not in the shot. So, if it's a period piece and there's a big-ass crane there, maybe that crane's not a bad place for me to hang out because I know they're not going to spin over and and right. have me have that crane in the shot.
1: Right. And like if that. they do, it's not your fault for really moving in fault. the shot.
2: <laughs> Oh, shit. If, you, that's the, if you're on the set and there's something going on and you'll see guys do it, you'll see, like, the cameraman will be running a film back and forth or something between shots, and if they run out in a shot, it's like the, whole, the air goes out of the place. Everybody is – they feel bad yeah. for the guy. They feel bad for the shot. They feel bad for the actors. It's just when that happens on a big shot, it's miserable. It's really. expensive,
1: yes. It is expensive. It's, it's <laughs> very right. damned expensive, and that's why we – we have all these rules, right? <laughs> well, so Hobbes uh, knew all of that. Hobbes' choreography relied very heavily on effective sword work. You know, you don't hit each other in the blade. You know, you you just fencing with each other's swords is not that's not sword fighting. That's right. not That's not what you do. So the choreography looks stupid if you just slap each other on the sword for, for 10 minutes. Sure. The, sure. You, you have to appear to be trying to kill the opponent because that's, or, the, we're
2: both that's doing, the point. We're both doing figure eights. All eights this the flourishy together. bullshit yeah, that people exactly.
1: don't do when they're trying to kill you, right? Yeah. But the shot has to be set up in a way that the camera can make it look as though... You are closer than you are, and that you are in a position to kill the opponent. And what Hobbes did, there's a concept in fencing called fencing measure. All right, fencing measure is the distance that you keep between yourself and your opponent that allows you to reach in and score the point. Without being so far away that a lunge won't take you to that to that scoring the point position. In other words, you have to be able to touch the uh, the opponent with with the the tip. All right. If you're too far away, you you have to take two steps, and that takes time, and and it it takes too long, and uh, you'll be parried on the way in. Hobbs wanted everybody far enough apart. So that nobody could ever get hurt, and then what he did, and if you look at at the, the scenes in these movies that we're going to talk about today, that Hobbs directed, you will you will notice that the camera is positioned in the shot so that you can't actually tell how close these people are together. He made the thing he made up for a too long a fencing measure with the shot angle, and. He's the one that did that. He, since he's the fight choreographer, he tells the cinematographer, "This is the way this thing needs to be shot. I want you right here." And uh, and so he, was a, he was a master at this. If you look at the Three Musketeers, uh, those those guys, th- that all of the sword work in the Three Musketeers looks exactly like it would look if these guys were trying to stick each other with a sword. It's so that's what you run it's not, into
2: it's when uh, you've got a professional doing the choreography. You've got the professional doing the choreography. He knows what he's doing. The camera guys know what they're doing. They all know where they're supposed to be, and the actors are trained properly. So often what you would see is a dangerous a dangerous fight scene, what you would anticipate is a dangerous fight scene, is less likely to be injurious to somebody than something that's like an ad hoc slap across the face or punch, right? Right. Because... Because those are the ones that will I've seen, um, those are the ones potentially turn to shit. So uh, I was with an actor one time. We were overseas, very expensive shoot. And the scene called for him to slap a guy across the face. Just to slap across the face. And the and the guy was there. The, the, the actor was there. Uh, the one he was supposed to slap was there. And the director was there. And the director said, uh, I've talked about it with him. Just go ahead and slap him. And the guy said, I'm not going to slap him. There's no, I'm not going to do that. You know, the guy I was there with. And the the other actor said, oh, no, 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 it's fine. Just go ahead and slap me. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And the director said, yeah, just go ahead and slap him. So the actor said, not a word. Turned around, walked over, walked into his trailer, walked out, got in his car, and we all took off. And then we came back the next day to see if they had, we're going to do it right. Because the actor said he was not going to be a part of something as foolish as that. For such a scene that could be accomplished safely, why would you, why would you risk slapping somebody across the, the jaw? Why would you do that if you didn't have to, right? Right, for for a scene of a movie. Because
1: something might happen. Well, the fucking T T N
2: T T or whatever the hell they call that ear thing. What's that called? The the buzzing in your ears that all of us got.
1: Tinnitus. Uh,
2: Tinnitus. You can get that from it. Yeah, all that stuff.
1: Yeah, it's uh, see that that that's that's ballsy on his part, you know in my judgment i'm the one that's supposed to do this if i hurt this guy it fucks up the production it sets the shooting schedule back you know i break a tooth you know i'm not likely to do that but if i'm going to actually slap the guy and make it look like i'm actually slapping the guy i've got to hit him hard enough to where it might no, no, hurt
2: what's it. going on in, this, in that other guy's head he might have something in there we don't know what's going to happen right so so this guy had, had the juice, right, to say he didn't he didn't argue. He's not there to argue with him. He's just not going to do it. So he walked over. We all took off. We showed up the next day on time, and we were all ready to go. And if they had tried that shit again, he would have left because he wasn't going to do it. So uh, they
1: figured out some way around it, I guess.
2: The way they should have done it the whole time, which is the absolute way that you shoot something like that, and nobody gets hurt. Yeah. Right. They were just trying to be cool.
1: Um, well, they're trying to be edgy, you know. Edgy. Yeah. He thought prop, the director probably thought he'd get a better performance out of the guy that got slapped if he actually got slapped. But one of the reasons we hired that guy is because he can act.
2: Yeah. Right? yeah. So, yeah, he can act. And also, uh, you loosen somebody's crown or any number of things.
1: Uh, oh, just, you know, it's unnecessary. stupid. Yeah.
2: I was on a set one time where they set a charge. I didn't, it was ridiculous that they set a charge in a window to make the charge explode right before the actor's hand punched through it and it was safety glass, well, if safety glass blows around, it it can cut you, right? Sure. So so somebody got cut and it was, why did you do it that way? What is there, there's a whole bunch of ways to do that without having to do it that way. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Right. So how much did that decision cost? And how much could it have cost if it shut down production for? A, it didn't shut down production. But it could shut down production for a week, or if it cripples the guy's hand, or any number of things. Right? Yeah, you, know, you
1: just—it's just you have to take these things into account. Yes. Um, yes. One of—we'll uh, talk about the Three Musketeers uh, uh, is, uh just one of my favorite movies of all time, and uh, talk about Oliver Reed in that in that movie. Oh God Almighty! Well, uh, I guess what we ought to do is just go ahead and get into the all right. Get Pick Into one. the, into the movies we're going to talk about. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about Ridley Scott first. Let's talk about the guy who, in my opinion, is the greatest modern film director. Uh, he has made a lot of movies that are just among my favorite. Top ten movies of all time, and we chose *Kingdom of Heaven* as our as our entry here for 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 Ridley Scott's sword movies. Now he's made, uh, as I mentioned before, *The Duelists*. He's the guy that did *Gladiator* with Russell Crowe, which was a fabulous film. Um, he did *Robin Hood* with Russell Crowe and uh, Kate Blanchett. Which a fabulous film, uh, and this most recently, this out this year is the last duel with Matt Damon, and uh, and that uh, one of the 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 most impressive thing about Ridley Scott's costume movies is the attention he pays to the costumes, and the sets, and the light, and the weapons. And the architecture and all of the stuff that goes on behind in the shot with the characters playing the script so his goal everything so, is exactly like it ought to be you know he's a
2: he's a he's a vision guy his yes. is, is all about the vision the vision of what's going on so some people have criticized him so i don't criticize movies because i know how hard it is to make the worst movie you ever saw was damn hard to make okay Right. And, and people, right. so, so I know how hard it is and how many, how, how much it takes to make one, but his, his thing is the vision of it. And then he's going to hire the right people that know what he expects out of them. He's going to hire the right costume guys, the white, right, right wardrobe guys, the right set decorators, the right everything, right. because they, they know what he expects. Right. And
1: he's got this down by now. I mean, he's got a group of people that he works with all the time and uh, the the quality that comes out in every one of these pictures is is just absolutely amazing this this most recent one, the last duel. Did you have time to watch that?
2: So here's the issue I have with the last duel. The other actor in it is the guy that was in that horrible Star Wars thing where they killed Han Solo and I haven't been able to watch anything with that guy in it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, <laughs> so That, that so was the I, Adam
1: Driver I, guy? Is that who's, well,
2: he's good, though. He was, uh, if, I, if I've misidentified him, I apologize. I'm sure he's a great guy, and I'm glad he's got work.
1: He's less he's offensive been. than Matt Damon. Anybody damn near. See, Matt Damon has created this problem for himself yeah. now, hasn't he? And I, we mentioned this the last time you and I talked about this. Uh, there are a group of actors who are working, some of whom you know, uh, for example, Keanu Reeves, Brad Pitt, and two or three others that keep their mouths shut. And in having done so, they have preserved their ability to be perceived as the character. But if Matt Damon runs around and wants to be the Democratic representative from Los Angeles and is a progressive leftist Hack, well, when I look at Matt Damon, I'm not, I'm going to be less able to allow myself to believe him in the role he's decided to play in this movie because of all the baggage that he brings with him. Now, well, yeah, and Reeves that's and Pitt are, are those guys, they, they preserved their their ability to be perceived as the character because they shut the fuck up. You know. Well,
2: and then, and as a consumer, like if you're going to watch a movie and you're going to be annoyed because of something that the actor brings to the performance and not being able to enjoy the performance, then don't reach in your pocket and go to the thing, right? Right. So, so if if all of a sudden we all decided that we are not going to ever watch a movie that had an actor that was that had politics that were different than ours or that were vocal about the politics, then we would be we would be very limited in, in arts, right? You'd be very limited in the arts. So, so you have to, so a person has to decide, am I gonna uh, sus- suspend disbelief and enjoy this performance or is it gonna annoy me so much that I can't enjoy the performance? Right. So every time I see, now this guy, he was a Marine. He, he's apparently a nice guy, uh, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, he was in that horrible movie where they killed Han Solo. And I can't get over that quite yet. Now I haven't seen any of those movies since then, but I might have to revisit it. Right. But I, uh, it just annoys me.
1: Well, I understand, and and I, for example, I'm not going to watch Jane Fonda do anything. She still around? I unfortunately, I she just hangs on. But I'm not watching the bitch do She's anything because I don't want to see her. I don't want to see her. I really don't. Yeah. You know. Uh, there are so, a few other actors that are that are headed in that direction. Nobody's quite as bad as she is, but uh, um, you know, the, John Travolta uh, is would be more effective had he behaved differently off camera. Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise is just so damn good. It's hard to fault him. You
2: can say what you want to back. about him, but that guy's <laughs> yeah, that he's guy's perfect. good. I mean, if he's going to something that's going to be good. The, yeah. The, so, and there's some actors that I didn't even know about. So, I'm, I'm watching a, a series on TV and it's got this guy uh, uh, named Cole Hauser in it. And I read an article. I saw an article pop up and I said, Oh my God, I'm going to find out something about this guy and it's going to make me not be able to enjoy his TV show anymore. And then I read the article and I think, shit, he seems all right. I think I'm going to enjoy mm-hmm. the TV show more now that I know all that right. this guy's a decent guy, you know? Right. Or, uh, the same thing. So the, the thing about *Kingdom of Heaven* people need to get their head wrapped around is if you watch Ridley Scott's version of it that was released, it's got an intermission. You're gonna have to get your shit together. It's a long movie. Right? It is Kingdom a long movie. Long
1: movie. This is the director's cut. It's two hours and thirty-five minutes. No, it's longer than that. That no, thing's almost it's almost, it's almost seven, three hours.
2: Seven, seven. It's not as long as a Seven Samurai*.
1: But no, three, no, no, no but but it's 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 almost three hours long but if you watch the theatrical release there is a major plot element that was edited out of that thing and it it really is a glaring hole in the script it's a glaring so,
2: problem you know the, the hole that i found in this in the script that i couldn't figure out maybe i missed it i haven't watched it uh i, I i've only watched it once at your recommendation. The, uh, the character Orlando Bloom's plan, is there ever a, an explanation on why he is, knows so much about engineering and knows so much about fighting and so much about strategy? Is there an explanation for that?
1: They, they allude to the fact that he had been an engineer. This is in the, and this is, again, this is in the director's cut. It was not yeah. in, the, in the theatrical release at all. The, uh, the director's cut explains that he was an engineer a siege uh, engineer in, uh, uh, but it was just, it was a line I in the dialogue between his, his brother and his father or something like that. That was, that was added in the, in the uh, director's cut that didn't make it into the theatrical release. So the, the, the glaring omission is, is even worse in the, in the, uh, uh, in the, in the theatrical release that it is in the long one. But, uh, by the same token, they could have done a better job with that. They could have explained the source of his expertise. But I, you know,
2: I, I bought into it. it. It wasn't necessary. The the no. and stuff. Even though it, it's a little, the engines and stuff's a little dated with the CGI. But um, seeing what those things are capable of is pretty spectacular. Yes. You know yeah. those, those big engines, and then uh, and then you waited a long time for it probably 20 minutes before it happens but when that priest finally could not keep his mouth shut while he was in there forging those blades and you knew right. something bad had to happen that was a pretty satisfying scene yes that's it the was. first time he, you yes, saw him and that was his day. brother was his, brother's, was yeah, his brother his brother that was his, that was his brother he killed his brother
1: because he thought. had it coming that's why because yeah, he good. had it coming because his brother was a piece of shit and but at that bad. point that's it's, when balian leaves the smithy and, and tracks down his dad and uh, goes well, to the, journey, goes right? on so, the crusade
2: so it's a classic hero's journey he yes. gets approached he gets approached by his dad he decides not to go so he shuts that door and then something happens and then he makes that trip so right. that was the, that was a classic hero's journey right so uh, it, it was it, you know it's a it's a timeless sort of story but the reason that those stories hold up so well, is because as a viewer, even if the viewer doesn't break it down into a model, like a narrative, nom- like a narrative device or, or a narrative outline, you recognize those things and mm-hmm. you kind of look at them and there are a degree of satisfaction. When it happens,
1: yes, it's, uh, and, and, and it's, it, it's just, it's so well filmed the cinematography in that film from the first scene to the end. It's just spectacular and uh you know and i'm not a big orlando bloom fan but he's fine in that role he does he, fine he's, he's fine in that role i i'm not really a particularly huge eva green fan but she was perfect in that rose excellent casting
2: well they and when they when he rode out and he went back he went out to, to continue his journey and he searched for his father right
1: mm-hmm.
2: and introduced you to that band of characters and they they had enough personality in each one that you could you you could see that character he wasn't just part of the rabble well then they started killing them off if you're like Jesus Christ I thought these guys I thought this was part of his his trip and it wasn't at all right
1: no, pretty no. pretty interesting
2: the way how quickly they they um, they showed the brutality of it. of course it started off with his wife getting her head chopped off because she committed suicide. So I guess that's a pretty good start.
1: To yeah. Say. They, they let you in on the fact that this is a, this is a primitive day.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, this is 13th century or 12th century, I think. And, uh, but it's, uh, I mean, all of those characters were, uh, well, the thing is so long and complicated. You get into the, to the actual politics of Jerusalem Yes, At this time and all those beautiful sets and uh, the politics of the court in Jerusalem and the uh, that stuff the, and you the leper king and
2: uh, who was Ed Norton? Ed, Ed Norton, Norton, Norton
1: played a yeah he played that whole that whole character behind the silver mask and uh, and that was a fabulous character that was a that, that whole thing with and Martin sokus that guy is a fabulous bad guy. He's
2: so- Which, which one was Socus? The,
1: the, the fat was, guy? Uh, was Guy de Luzignon. Oh, yeah, 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 the guy that-
2: guy, the, the, Her the band. husband. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Her husband. So, so husband.
1: And uh, yeah, that guy is a, he he makes a wonderful bad guy. God almighty, he's easy to hate. And uh, he, he and Brendan Gleeson in that film Kind of played off of each other brendan gleason was the mm-hmm. the crazy guy uh with the castle and uh it's uh it's all it, kinds it, of interesting things going on in this movie it, I'm
2: telling of, to me the the strategy involved was very interesting his you know him setting up his range markers and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. all that's interesting um and in, in believable degree why would you go out in the sand and Fight people that have lived there for centuries. Why would you do that? right So yeah, uh, it was a good movie. Thanks for introducing me to that. I, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I really.
1: It, those of you that have not seen Kingdom of Heaven, the 2005, it was made in 2005. It's Orlando Bloom, Eva Green, Liam Neeson, uh, and a bunch of other people you'll recognize. And the Syrian actor who played uh, Salahaddin, his name is Ghassan Massoud I don't think. He actually speaks any English, but he uh, he did a, just a fabulous job with that role, and uh,
2: an impressive guy, right? This is a, a this very is an impressive, impressive guy. guy. He's this, not a huge guy, guy but he just people, yeah, he, he was the king.
1: Yeah, he knows. Him.
2: Yeah, yeah, very impressive guy. Very people impressive. The, guy. I'll tell you that. Go back to Ed Norton for a second. I, uh, you know, it's easy to forget how talented that guy is. Yeah, and you know, it's to be able to pull off that sort of presence behind that mask is pretty impressive. Yes,
1: yeah. well, that the slightest ability to show any facial expression at all, not, he just had to do it not, all with, with the lines, yeah. and he did a great job. Yeah. physical acting with that, he was just that was a that was a fabulous role for him. Uh, I haven't seen him in anything better. Uh, he he was uh, uh, that, that's just uh, a. Uh, an excellent uh an excellent piece of of act i'm, I'm thinking of the the part where he goes into uh, uh, the castle after having conferred out on the plain with saladin and says mm-hmm. he'll take care of the take care of the problem he goes in there and he gets off his horse and he slaps the man across the yeah head. he takes yeah. His, yeah. he slaps him across the face with his glove makes yeah. he's and and makes him kiss his leprous infected hand
2: <laughs> slobber all over oh and god gray. and he oh just
1: that so <laughs> that scene was so that the whole damn thing sucker so look i've watched this movie eight or nine times it's one of these perfect films i just love it I so love it. I'll watch it watching, every three months because it's just so damn good. you know?
2: If a person's watching that movie and they're starting to think it's a little slow, it'll just give it a chance until you see the guy walk into the blacksmith and start giving his brother a rash of, uh, of crap. Then it'll pick up from there. That's, yeah. A, that's a,
1: yeah, it that's picks a, up quite quickly from there. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, there the, all of that stuff, all the slow stuff in front of that movie they had edited out because it's slow. But it's germane to the to the plot, it's and it needed to be put back in. And if you don't have the patience uh, for that, then you just you're not going to be as entertained as you would be otherwise.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. What's, what, do so, right. what do you want to talk about? So, to to? Uh,
1: Kingdom of Heaven uh, is obviously in our top five. Uh, let's talk about uh, let's talk about the Seven Samurai next. All right. All right.
2: So the classic Seven Samurai, that's been remade. Seven Samurai.
1: It was made in 1954. And Seven Samurai was the basis for the, the famous Western movie by John Sturgis called The Magnificent Seven. Right. That movie was a landmark in cinematic history and in the history of storytelling. Because as far as I know, that is the first time that this big sweeping story had been set set on film of you've got a whole bunch of people who are oppressed by a group of bad guys and a team of of heroes is assembled to fight them yes and each one of the heroes in the seven samurai is a is an important character each one of them brings something to the table and uh Together, this small group defeat the larger group at great personal cost and this this has been repeated over and over and over there is a there is a a film that is uh, uh I think it's two thousand eleven called uh, thirteen assassins yep that, thirteen that basically repeats the same story but uh uh
2: so when you start off watching this movie, you understand that not all of these guys are going to make it through the movie, right? Right. So ever since then, whenever they've done a remake, uh, the Magnificent Seven or whatever, you understand that these characters that you like, uh, they're not going to be, they're not going to be around. Not all of them are going to be around.
1: Right.
2: The uh, the original, it was interesting. The, the, the Seven Samurai, the the bad guys, really had no personality. They were they were featured as like a force of nature or something they were just the bad guy they didn't even exist you know yeah because we we,
1: uh, kurosawa did not want the audience interested in the bad guys
2: yeah that's an interesting point so he so when they made seven sam when they made the magnificent seven then that eli wallach guy right he was Mm -hmm. the bad guy if i'm not mistaken in magnificent seven and he had much more personality and you had a tendency to he could make it relatable he was still an evil bad guy but he could make it a little relatable the bad guys in uh the enemy in seven samurai are strictly
1: they're just faceless they're, bad guys
2: they're just faceless bad guys. you know yeah.
1: and you have some prominent japanese actors in the uh, that that are the are the two main bad guys but their characters aren't developed
2: no they're not you know, they would out. have
1: been recognizable to the audience at the time but their characters weren't developed because it wasn't critical to the story the story's about the good guys. Now, Akira Kurosawa was the director of many, many, many very important Japanese sword movies. Many of them. All, with classic scripts, these things are... It's, it was hard for us to pick out one of them to, to list as the primary one for our top five because Yojimbo, Sanjiro, Rashomon... Ron, Throne of Blood, all of these are, are, are just excellent films, excellent They're important films, too. far Yo-Jimbo's. better than the vast majority of films you find today.
2: Yojimbo and is an important movie. Yojimbo is a very important movie. Very important movie. That character that Clint Eastwood picked up the mantle for, uh, Rashomon, uh, the plot device in Rashomon of of the different perspectives, right? The, yes. the, the event viewed from five perspectives. That's been and most
1: recently uh, revisited in The Last Duel, this Ridley right. Scott movie we just talked about. Yeah.
2: Uh, and the, you, uh, and the, the uh, classic, like the uh, unreliable narrator, right? If you can't trust the person telling you the story, how the hell are you supposed to figure out what's going on, right? Right. So th- those are two devices that uh, I don't know. I don't remember seeing much of them. I don't no. know. Rashomon, no. first time they were done on a big scale
1: it probably was because uh and it's difficult to do uh it, uh I, I seem to think i seem to remember a Kubrick movie that utilized that device uh i can't remember what it was but it seemed like there was a Kubrick movie that did that um i may be wrong they, they about refer that,
2: to that but, technique now is rashomon technique they refer right. to that technique. so that would tell me that that was the first. The time. same
1: story told from three different perspectives, yeah. and uh, each subsequently filmed differently, different yeah. shots, different different lines, different approaches by the actors to the to the story. It, it, it was fascinating. It, it's
2: and if it was, you look uh, for clues, if you look for clues to support or disprove one of the versions, you will find clues to support or disprove it do you know what i mean mm-hmm. there's enough clue there that they it, it's very interesting done but uh, i'm sorry back to seven samurai i just got a little sidetracked seven, seven samurai,
1: samurai uh it, it you you cannot uh talk about seven samurai without talking about toshiro mifune now this yeah. was an extremely important japanese actor uh yeah. he was in many 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 dozens of movies He's a very strong personality. Uh, Kurosawa said uh, uh, of Toshiro, they got crossways later in there. They did 15 or 16 movies together, and they kind of had a falling out. But even after that, they didn't hang around together after that where they'd been close friends. But neither one of them had anything but extremely complimentary things to say about each other. and kurosawa said of uh Mifuni said i have never worked with an actor that could that could transmit as much information in a short a period of time as mifuni right
2: something about three steps what you normally take 10 or something something along right. those lines something yeah something about three steps It would normally take 10. He, or was a,
1: he was a communicator he was a Fabulous yeah. physical communicator, and uh, the Seven Samurai is a, is one of the top ten movies of all time. And so I, character- I, that's not an exaggeration. I don't no, think that's don't an exaggeration. It's, it's so it's- important. It's it's up there with, uh, uh, you know, the things that get get played as classic films like uh, Orson Welles. Citizen Kane, for example, that's regarded as one of the top ten movies of all time. And Seven Samurai is certainly in that in that in that category. Uh, he used photographic techniques and cinematography
2: techniques that hadn't been used before. So, so I don't you know. think that that's I don't think you are overstating it at all. No, I, mean, I don't think most so. People, most people will most people will find that as being one of them. But now it's a long movie. It's three hours. And it's 20 three minutes
1: hours and thirty five minutes long. It's a, a job, three, and it's subtitled, and you have to watch it. You've got to pay. And that's if right. if you're one of these people that likes to be babysat through a movie, you're not gonna. This isn't accessible to you. So, but you don't need to see it anyway because you're too stupid to understand what's going on. Not interesting.
2: <laughs> it, yes, it, don't, it won't, it won't it interest. It.
1: Yeah. It's a, so, it would be a waste of time. But for a person who is serious about film and serious about this genre, Seven Samurai is the archetypal hero story. Yes. It is, <laughs> it is on par with Beowulf in terms of its importance in the culture of oh um, what would you call it uh normal human behavior all well right. so
2: if you look at, so the seventh samurai it was during the period of time that these uh that the, the line was is uh even the bear's got to come out of the mountain when he gets hungry right so so these guys are going to do this not for riches because there was no riches to be had
1: no. right They were farmers they were but, working for all they would work for was rice
2: I was going to work for rice, so so that that's all they're working for, um, and th- and then they they. It seems to me that they empowered the villagers more than in this in the first version than they did in any of the subsequent versions, so so this version when they finally get to the giant battle scenes that seems to it seems to be about the last forty five minutes of the movie maybe with a couple intercuts. Mm-hmm. Samurai would come up, and they had the plan, they had the tactics, right? They funneled them all down the same corridor. But then one of them would might slash the guy off the horse, one of the bad guys off the horse. But then the, the villagers would pursue them with those damn spears and just cut them to pieces, right? Yes. Just spear them to death. So the, the villagers were more involved. They were more, they weren't
1: more. Than in uh, the Magnificent Seven, yes. Yeah, the, is there that, inter- the, the interpretational difference between between the two. There were, there were some substantial plot differences between the two. But if you look at the uh, Magnificent Seven, uh, Sturges says at the front of the in the titles that this is a remake of yeah, yes. the, <laughs> the the great yeah. film of uh, yeah. Akira Kurosawa, uh, the, the Seven Samurai. He, they
2: that's in the that's in the opening titles of the movie. So can you remember? So we, you can tie a couple of the characters to the Seven Samurai. So Seven Samurai to, to the Magnificent Seven. You can tie a couple of the characters. So there's Chris, right? He's the leader, and then there, mm-hmm. there's the clear leader of the Seven Samurai. He cuts his top knot in the beginning to to uh, he shaves to seal his, his head, but you can see who he is, right? He he so, shaves to, to, his I'm head saying. so he can walk
1: into the house to get the child
2: out. Get the baby,
1: that's right. right. So, and then so, he keeps rubbing okay. his head for the rest of the. For the rest, because oh my God, where'd my hair go?
2: You so, know. so right off the bat, they're telling you that this guy is perfectly comfortable, not with that vanity to accomplish the goal, right? right. This is all about the mission. So then you got him, you uh, you've got the the master that's the best swordsman of all of them, right? He you could see him in Colburn and the Seven Samurai. That was yeah. that same sort of guy, right? Very
1: serious, quiet.
2: Yeah, that's who that guy is, but. Uh, Mafuni. i didn't see i don't see that trickster court jester sort of character go in, through a train in the seven samurai i don't know right. if it's there and i don't see it in. The, I, I see you know the that's samurai.
1: a good point he played the role of the the, the guy was called kikucho and uh that I, I you know that was i don't know if that was supposed to be the young Mexican guy that was tagging along with him in Magnificent Seven. I don't I don't know
2: No, I didn't see that and then of course Mifune goes from that to making Yojimbo, which is a whole different character, you know, yeah, but uh, the uh, The strategy and the Seven Samurai is very important if you're if you like films if you like if you like sword movies, mm. and if you like film, you should watch it. If you haven't seen it, most mm. people that listen to this podcast, I think, have probably seen.
1: If they've they've most stuff. people that are interested at this point, an hour deep into this podcast about what we're talking about, have got a copy of the Criterion <laughs> Collection of of The Seven Samurai. And if you don't, in, in well, you need in to stop. Yes. Stop the recording and get it because it's, get it it's important and you need a copy of it and you need to watch it. You need to watch it. You need to pay attention to what's going on. You need to watch it for the movie. And then you need to go back and watch it for the literature, for the for the cinematography, for the location shots and for the for the way the thing was put together theatrically. It was it was it's an incredible film. You know, you can't say enough good stuff about this. It's, and, uh, and it's been
2: mastered, so it looks it looks very good. Oh,
1: it's, it's the the <laughs> yeah. Criterion Collection uh, DVD I've got is there's not a scratch anywhere on that thing. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's be, and and the photography is of such high quality. It's just a very dense, high resolution, black and white transfer. It's beautiful.
2: The one the one I watched has a little bit of a remnant. In the top but it sort of added to the movie it didn't take away i don't know that probably doesn't make much sense but you could see that there was a slight flaw in the and from the original when they remastered is what i would guess it was well it sort of added to the movie it didn't take away
1: it was kind of interesting now, a lot of these a lot of these older films that that we watch there is a company called the criterion collection and their dvds are a little more expensive but they come with a bunch of material, uh, a booklet about the film they're they're dealing with, and the transfer is flawless. On all these things, they have gone to great lengths to produce a, uh, a an unmarred transfer that looks like the original film would have looked in the theater the day the damn thing premiered. It's it's a really really they take good good care to to make a high quality product and if it's a little more money just spend it this is not something you're going to want to not have anyway okay so
2: after i rewatched the seven samurai i found a a documentary on toshiro mifune
1: yeah
2: and it was very interesting it it talked about the the beginnings of the samurai movies and uh had a bunch of old guys talking it sounded like keanu reeves maybe was doing the narrating which would make sense you know Mm -hmm. uh but it's well it's not it's not anything over the top surprising he was a drinker and he liked to drive his car fast i mean that's not not to be unexpected well, who right? doesn't you know yeah but yeah so but it was uh it's worth a watch just for the historical part of it i know you're not a documentary guy but it's no it's a well, good, i
1: like that stuff uh it's a good I visit watch, the if if the movie's good i'll always watch the making of feature that they include with the with the deal in fact i the movie we're going to talk about next is uh, uh, has a, a long making of uh, feature that comes with the DVD collection and that's the the three musketeers and the four musketeers which is an interesting thing One before we leave the seven samurai I wanted to point out a couple of things there is a there is a movie a Kurosawa movie called Ron
2: yeah, I haven't seen that yet
1: that is no it's a it's most people have not seen it i don't know why but this is one of his later films it it is uh it is a retelling of king lear it's the japanese version of king lear so you've got an elderly king who decides to divide his kingdom up into pieces for his three sons which begin to immediately begin to fuck everything up right 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 standard right, right. right so uh that's what ron is about ron is interesting it's a color film and it was shot the in all of his movies are shot on location in japan but this is uh this is an interesting film in that there are really not any close-ups in the movie there are no facial studies no character studies there's everything is, is shot from a distance everything is shot in a way that does not emphasize any one of the individual characters i thought it was very interesting in in the way that he stayed away from close-ups of the of his principal characters uh, the actors in this film he he shoots this thing from the standpoint kind of if you understand what i mean by of the yeah. story
2: yeah yeah, yeah back yeah, here
1: not there, but back here. So yeah, you can yeah. see all of this stuff going on at the same time. And it's yeah. uh that's a long film too. And it's a it's really good. It's Was it really, more, really good.
2: Is it more of a stage setting? Does it look like a stage no, setting?
1: No, no, it is no, no it's big, I don't mean, broad, I don't, expansive. I mean, shot
2: on location. I know it's on location. Shot on location. There are like three
1: hundred horses in some of these shots.
2: Is it one perspective? Yes. Like you you're sitting here watching it all happen.
1: It's like yes, mm-hmm. it's shot from a third person perspective.
2: So you're sitting there watching. Huh? Yeah, but that, no, so this those, is those, a huge yeah. film.
1: It's it's uh I can't imagine how much money they spend on this thing because there are several scenes where there are 300 horses Jesus in Jesus. in period tack. That's 300. In, you got to feed. You got to feed uh, them. It's just, you know, you're just you're just impressed by the by the the hugeness Sure. Of, the, of the film and the hugeness. But what I'm saying is the hugeness of this film was not ever interrupted with a close-up shot of one of the characters. It's, it's very interesting the way the way this was done. Very, very interesting.
2: Let's do something. I'll have to check that out. And, uh,
1: <laughs> and we'd mentioned 13 assassins before. That is a the, the 13 assassins, the last 45 minutes of that movie is a fight. A 45-minute-long fight scene. Damnedest thing you've ever seen. Without an uninterrupted 45 minutes of a fight scene. It's just absolutely amazing. And uh, I highly recommend that.
2: 15 years, something like that? Last 15 years, last 10 years? 13 Uh, assassins?
1: 11, 11, I believe.
2: 11 years,
1: okay. I I believe it's 2011. 13 assassins. And then... uh, the the fabulous uh reboot of the zatoichi franchise uh which took place in 2003 uh takashi kitano, kitano is the is the director of this thing and the character who plays zatoichi the blind swordsman and that franchise is very very famous film franchise in japan there were yeah, dozens yeah, yeah. and dozens of movies made about this guy and a TV show that ran for eight or nine years. And it's just a, a tremendously popular character. But uh, Takashi Kitano redid this thing in 2003. And that is a damned interesting movie. I'll it's really, that. really good. It's, it is. Did you, uh, it,
2: uh, it Have you ever seen any of the lone wolf and cub? Have you ever seen any of those movies where no, the guys I, I haven't. But I, but I, I, I'm, I'm aware of, of it. Yeah, and the guy's walking along with a baby carriage, and he pulls parts of the baby carriage out and fights all these people. Um, I, I put that in the same era as uh, the Blind Swordsman, right? right? Would that be the same same sort of time frame?
1: I, I haven't seen the the Wolf and Cub stuff. Yeah,
2: now I, the Blind I, I Swordsman can't. is that a comedy? Is the Blind Swordsman a comedy? There, there
1: are some there are some comedic elements in it, but uh, it's not really a comedy. No, it it's what you'd call a. Uh, Oh, there, are com- there are comedic elements in everything, but there's, yeah. this thing, I'll tell you though, th- this thing ends up, it, it's so strange, the movie ends up, This all this sword fighting and all this fabulous action and everything, and the goddamn thing ends up with a song and dance piece. <laughs> uh, a big song and dance choreography on stage that is with music and and people dancing—it's just—it's just, just absolutely—it's—it's it's silly, yeah. but it's—it's—it's it's, it's, uh, what an interesting way to end that film. It, it was, but uh, Takashi Kitano is—is—he's really good, you know. He's—he's he's really good. He was in Ghost in the Shell. He was the—he was the Japanese uh, policeman, the quiet yes. Japanese policeman with the big revolver. It goes right. in the right. shell. Ghost He's in uh, <laughs> this was in, this is made in two thousand three, so it's uh that's uh, that's worth mentioning along with our discussion of the Kurosawa stuff. Uh, all right, well, we got to get onto the we've got to get to the three musketeers. So the
2: three musketeers, we, we discussed that as a comedy prior, right? We had discussed it as a comedy
1: briefly, but it's a sword movie. But there are so many things in this movie that are funny as hell that it's just one of the more entertaining films I've ever seen. I saw this when it first came out in 73. And this movie is, you know, one of the long tradition of films about the three musketeers. This thing was made uh, by Alexander Salkind, and it was it was shot in 1973 and uh was released in uh, i think it was released in 74. but the interesting thing about this film was richard lester directed it the salkin people produced it and this thing was shot these two movies were shot as one movie three and four in in other words they hired the cast and the crew to make a movie Mm -hmm. and then they got into post-production and they said you know what let's just make this into two movies because we got enough stuff here to to sell uh tickets for two movies so they made two two two-hour movies out of the damn thing and it pissed everybody off, There's real, b- well, yeah. real bad. There
0: yeah, There's there were lawsuits about this. Pit. I mean, yeah. you
1: didn't pay us; you paid us for one movie, and you're, p- and now you're making money off of two movies. And oh man, everybody's pissed. Everybody's pissed. I had somehow got resolved, but the the cast of this thing is is fabulous. It's absolutely fabulous. It is. Uh, Michael York played D'Artagnan, the young uh, Gascon musketeer recruit and the other guys are richard chamberlain who was uh I think he was athos
0: no oliver he was aramis
1: reed. he was aramis uh frank finley was was porthos who was funny as hell
2: which one was oliver reed oliver reed was i know the uh, actor but which which character did he play
1: he played uh i believe he was uh
2: athos he, he was the one that you got the most personality out of, right? Yes. He I mean, had the most personality. He was Frank Finley
1: who- was funny, though. Frank Finley was... Yeah. Uh, uh, I was just... Uh, I've always... When I saw... I was in high school when I saw this damn thing. And it was, it was just funny. And I bought the soundtrack record. I just love this film, and <laughs> I still love it. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And uh, the... But, but the rest of that cast was absolutely amazing. Spike Milligan was in it. The famous British comedian, he was, uh, uh, Bonassure. He was, and Raquel Welch is in it and she's his wife. And, and, uh,
2: uh, every, every little scene there's, if you, if you watch it, I would recommend people put on the subtitles. Put your subtitle because there's little teeny comments made throughout the whole movie that are so yeah. easy
1: in the background. The, right.
2: The, the, right, the background noise and it's hilarious. Like there was a running joke about the, the the one the bad guy girl the bad girl, she uh, there was a running we joke about putting on weight.
1: By the way, putting
2: on weight, right? Yeah, she was putting <laughs> on weight the whole time. So every time somebody <laughs> would carry around in her carriage, they'd have something to say about her. Like, Man,
1: this is. This is harder. Yeah. She's harder to pick up, and she wasn't. Left.
2: Yeah, just yeah. <laughs> like, like. That, you
1: know? Yeah, just in the background there, yeah. but it's uh, oh the god,
2: sword fight that, was so but nonchalant, right? The the, sword fighting was like nonchalant. They this get- was
1: a Hobbes choreographed yeah. film, and yeah. he did a fabulous job with these things. And the swords were cheap and believable, and uh, yeah. there wasn't any armor. To speak of, and these guys were just their musketeers, so they had muskets, but their primary weapon was the sword.
2: And they would and, ask, they ask, Is everybody all right? Is anybody dead? You know, after a sword fight, is anybody yeah, dead? Anybody, the, very, well, the yeah.
1: Cardinal's Guard were their arch yes, enemies, they're, and they're, they was, had fights <laughs> with the Cardinal's Guard the whole time. The Cardinal was played by uh, Charlton Heston, and, yes. uh, and Christopher Lee played his henchman. Christopher Lee Christopher Lee's 6'4". do you know that he, he's is, a big yeah, he's giant a tall man I love Christopher yeah, Lee oh he's 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 and I' and I'll tell you one of the things and I'd mentioned this earlier and I I want to talk about this there if you buy the DVD collection the, the two films the three Musketeers and the four Musketeers, there is a there is a a, a making of track uh where they they talk to Christopher Lee about the making of the movie and he talks you know all of them during the during the thing we you know this is they probably shot that 20 years later but they they were all pissed off about the two movies that they'd gotten <laughs> hired to make one movie for and so he talks a little bit about that but he keeps talking about Christopher was impressed he and Oliver Reed were friends but Oliver Reed was a crazy person he was a he was a he was a crazy person. He was a drunk and he was abusive and horrible and the the story is is after his eighth drink, he was horrible. You couldn't couldn't deal with him after his eighth drink. Couldn't stand to be around him. But Hobbes apparently had had trouble with Oliver Reed about him. (laughs) <clears throat> but tried to keep Oliver Reed from killing the other actors during the sword fights. And, uh, and Christopher Lee talks about this in the, in the, in his <laughs> little commentary. <laughs> he said, Oliver, it's a movie. Yeah. yeah. It's, a movie. it's so, Oliver. It's a movie. <laughs>
2: so Oliver Reed, yeah. When yeah. he gets, he gets in sword fights. He gets in. He gets out of breath so quick, and he's <laughs> yeah. and he's got the glazed face on that glazed like yep. drunk face, right? That exhausted drunk face. I'm not right. drunk face, and right. it's like that's because that's the way he was.
1: Because he that's was. because he was yeah. he was probably you know he was hung over when he filmed all this whole damn thing, yeah. but uh, his it, his involvement in the character was impeccable. He was just it was when he was in a when they filmed a fight scene. Reed was mad. Yes. He was mad at you and it was, yeah. it was, it was, this is such a fabulous. It's funny in an extremely dry way that yes. the humor yes. in this movie is very, very dry. So like that scene with, uh, with D'Artagnan and his servant, who was played by the amazingly hilarious Roy Kinnear, British actor, uh, right. Right, right. are, are, they're riding under a tree great big giant tree. You remember this? Yes. End- yes. <laughs> yes. These yes, guys yes, yes, ride yes. under the tree and as soon as they get past the tree, eight or 10 guys jump out of the tree and land on the ground going
2: miss them <laughs> it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> It's just a just a long shot of this whole damn thing. That kind of yeah. funny dry stuff is just all the way through the film is that way. Uh, it's so, one of the most so entertaining it. movies I've ever seen. I I'd never get tired of it. And uh the first one really was better than the second one
2: it was Uh, it was it it really was it was a finished complete movie the second one did not have the same sort of energy to me no
1: no i don't think it did i think they put that together out of stuff that was left over but they obviously shot a bunch of that stuff after the the events of the of the script in the in the first movie but it, it just wasn't as good a it wasn't as good a piece of a film as the as the first one. But nonetheless, you it, if you are interested in this genre, you have to see this damn thing. This is the best Three Musketeers movie that's ever been filmed, and it is entertaining on a whole bunch of different levels. And I, I really you need to you need to you need to watch it. You really do.
2: Yeah. It's 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 the watch the uh, the 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 line where just the throwaway lines like Raquel Welch was with the old guy that was her husband right yeah and he's like an old guy in every movie that's ever you've been put shoot. out in that era right yeah and and he she's complaining to D'Artagnan and she goes he's old and troubled with wind what in the <laughs> hell old that?
1: and troubled with me and she's so sweet when she says that and uh, this is Raquel Welch in 1973. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. that <laughs> What a deal. What a treat to get to see this beautiful fucking girl. God, she was gorgeous. And uh and, and Faye Dunaway was at the height of her powers too. She was a beautiful
2: sure. woman. Sure. Sure. she was stunning, yeah. And uh She was the uh, yeah. And they were they were funny. You know, they they had good lines and they were funny and they were oh, delivered yeah. nice. Not- you know, it was, yeah. it was it was well done, and and the sword fights were interesting. Uh, yes, it's it it holds up, it
1: holds, it, it up. holds up, flawlessly it holds, up. holds up. It's not yeah. like a lot of movies from the '70s where you have to just excuse the director for his lack of perspective. Uh, sure. This thing is good. Watch it. Absolutely. All right. Now another Hobbs movie. Let's let's talk about is uh, Rob Roy. Now Rob Roy.
2: Rob Roy, Roy was filmed in 1995. Tim Roth is the shittiest bad guy that's ever been in movie history. That, he he that was, was despicable in he, this movie.
1: That was an amazing performance by this, this, this guy, Tim Roth.
2: Completely and despicable in this he, movie. Yeah. You
1: hated every molecule of his little nasty body.
2: Every little piece of him you hated. yeah. Yes. Yep.
1: And, uh, of course, Liam Neeson plays the role of Rob Roy. Rob Roy mm-hmm. was a historical character. Uh, a lot of this movie follows what is regarded as the historical facts of the situation. Right, uh, you know there was a conflict between Rob Roy McGregor and the the Marquis of Montrose that that actually occurred. Uh, uh, the Scotch the Scottish nobleman was. Uh, The Scottish nobleman was uh, was his benefactor eventually all these things actually occurred and it is a uh, uh, it's a it was shot all on location in Scotland and I saw this movie in 95 and Mm -hmm. uh, I decided as a result of seeing this movie that I was going to Scotland good and I got in 1996 I got on a plane and flew to Scotland and walked around scotland for two and a half
2: weeks you enjoy yourself oh god yes i've been there a few times i've been there a few times
1: i really really love the place i'm not going back because it's it's you can't go to the uk now but it at the time it was you know everybody was kind of normal and uh
0: my my third
1: trip over there was the time when the, the the british government had decided that nobody can even have a shotgun anymore and everybody was collecting the the constabulary, was collecting all the shotguns and keeping them for your safety in the police station. Jesus Christ. So that's, that's uh, you know, late 90s uh, when I was over there, that all was taking place. And
2: uh, I was in Edinburgh and went and saw the underground tombs and stuff in Edinburgh. That was yeah. very interesting
1: yeah it's a it, it's a it's a beautiful country there's not hardly anybody there or at least there wasn't at the time. The place is still vacant after the uh, uh British government moved everybody out of the highlands uh, back in the 1700s it's there are ruins and little pastures you drive down the road and there's a little ruined house out in the middle of the pasture mm-hmm. nobody nobody in it
2: still uh, it's interesting it's, that a movie calls you to go visit the place. That's yeah,
1: pretty interesting. yeah. Well, at the time I was a little more mobile than I am now, and it's uh, uh, it was a hell of a lot of fun. But that's why I went there was because of Rob Roy, and uh, because it just the the places, the the photography in this movie is just so compelling. It's a it's a beautiful landscape, and once you get there and get up in the in the hills, it looks exactly like that. The Rob Roy yeah. the, the the film Rob Roy is a perfect uh, representation of the Highlands of Scotland. It it mm-hmm. really is. Now there'll be somebody that, you know, lives in Inverness that wants to argue with me about that. But look, it's sure. you know.
2: It's your perspective from twenty years ago That's my perspective it? from Boy.
1: from twenty five years ago 25. after Having not oh, seen the movie was I'm glad I went and it looks just like the movie and I you know poked around over there three or four more times, so, and made some friends over there and uh, had you know visited several times and uh, but the movie itself is a is a a wonderful vehicle for Liam Neeson I had never seen Liam Neeson in a movie that I was aware of before now I actually had because I had seen him in Excalibur. Which is uh, which is a another sword movie that we've left out of our top five for various reasons. It was uh, Excalibur was was one of the early films. It was a real good movie, but it doesn't compare to these other ones that we have. It it's important in in several ways, but it's it's not the same quality film as as what we have selected for our top five. But Liam Neeson was a character in Excalibur. He was one of the knights of the round table in this thing.
2: Now, Picard was one of them, too, wasn't he? Wasn't Picard in Yes,
1: yeah, and Patrick Stewart was yeah. one That's of those too. guys. Yeah. Uh, he was in Excalibur as well. Uh, but, uh, but Rob Roy is uh, uh, a, a really served as an excellent introduction to most audiences for Liam Neeson's ability to play a main character like that it was it was an excellent job and you know you talk to the scottish people over there and they got irritated with his irish version of of, of a scottish accent and they got tired of jessica lang's um uh, uh kind of her version of a scottish accent they wanted to pick holes in it but
2: uh, well, it's, it's easy it, you pick holes in anything but the, she she played a tremendous role and she uh, she did a
1: great she job really with
2: it. Really role. Yeah. role in a, in a tough in a couple tough scenes she played a very powerful role she was yes. very good uh, yeah
1: yeah the the uh, the, uh, the rape scene was that was tough to watch it really was
2: it was and tough it, to watch it was I tough to read, watch it I was handled eight.
1: so well it
2: was just that was, was yeah it yeah. was hard to watch yeah. I read an interview with her uh, a while back About that scene, and she said, basically, she said, uh, the questions along line was how traumatic was it? And she said, listen, it's acting. There's a sound guy underneath the table. There's this. There's that. I'm fine. That was her basic premise. It was just acting. Just acting. It it was a tough scene. But it was a tough
1: scene to watch. Yes. And they did a fabulous job of making it a tough scene to watch, and that's their job, right?
2: Well, whenever but, uh, they take somebody, put them in a completely helpless situation, it's hard to watch. It's yes. hard to watch, somebody it's completely helpless. Right. So, um, so Tim Roth, you bet. Yeah. He, I don't know anything about the guy personally, but he played a guy that's despicable through the core.
1: Right. Yeah. Not and a he, redeeming characteristic in the man. And, no. uh, he was, uh, he was nominated for a couple of, I think he was actually nominated by the Academy for Best Supporting Actor for that role. Didn't Probably win should it, have got but, it, but he should have. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But, so uh,
2: the so he was so my take on that character, he and he and uh, Liam Neeson obviously got a fight at the end of it, but my take on that character is that he was raised, he was raised very well, and he had nothing but time on his hands, and is how he became classically trained with the sword. That was sort right. of my take on. it. Mm-hmm. So him and rob boy it was the difference between a big strong tough guy that knew how to fight and a guy that was superbly trained that
1: knew because how to fence
2: their, yeah that knew how to fence that that right. was my take on it.
1: yeah it was a it was a, the juxtaposition of these two styles of of uh of fighting the last scene was as far as i'm concerned is hobbs best fight choreography that fight was about 10-12 minutes long yes it was shot in a in a, in a building in a, in a room with a big dirt floor stone building with a big dirt floor and I, they worked on they had to have worked on that for a couple of weeks because it was just absolutely convincing the best sword fight I've ever seen on film between so two you, guys no. the best sword fight I've ever yeah. seen on film
2: well, that's an and impressive state. When you see a fight like that, then everything has to be right. So so all the stuff has to be right, and then these guys got to do the fight scene. So the characters in the background that you can see have to be right. The lighting has to be perfect. The sound has to be perfect. All of this has to be done. Uh, the transitions have to be smooth. There's so many things that have to go right for an extended fight scene like that to work out. Right? And Again.
1: all the shots have got to be blocked to the to where... Especially in a situation like this, these are two different types of weapons. Uh, Rob Roy, Liam Neeson's character, is using a claymore, which is an edge weapon. It's a hacking weapon. It's designed to chop and cut. Tim Roth's character, Archie, is yes. using a rapier, which is a right. point weapon. So they're, they're two completely different styles of yeah. of 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 the use of these two, these two blades, uh, Archie's rapier is a foot longer than Rob's claymore. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, uh, he uses that, that point to great effect during this
2: fight. And And it takes uh, a, you, you have to sell the fact that this five foot seven guy can stand in the same room as, Neeson, who's what, 6'4", or something? He's I mean, the big
1: tall man, too, yes. He's
2: 6'3", okay. 6'4". So, they to sell that, because they don't, they don't shy away from the fact of the difference in size.
1: No, they, they showcase it. They,
2: show, they, they showcase, showcase it,
1: that Archie is a dangerous man. Oh. Because he knows how to use his point. Rob yes. is at a disadvantage. Because so they, of the fact that Archibald dangerous. is trained in the point, Archibald has a longer blade, and if if rob is going to get archie with his hack with his claymore he's got to get in close and that's how they solve the problem at the end of the fight you know yes and, and
2: yes so so we're introduced to how badass archie is in in the first scene that he gets in the fight that guy's that guy is new the new uh, his champion, he called him his champion. So Archibald with, steps in there and fights with that guy with Guthrie
1: and just, in the in one of the early scenes in the film. Yes,
2: just easily, pro- oh. just toys with him for yes. the whole right. six minutes scene or five minutes scene. Right. Just toys toys with
1: him while appearing to be a a simpering, you know, light.
2: Effeminate is, is the word. While
1: appearing to be st- studiously effeminate at the same time, because yeah, he's, he's playing right. this, the character is playing okay. this role.
2: And he's and Archie, by the way, is a horrible uh, abuser of women. Right? He he's, he just goes around leaving leaving women pregnant wherever he goes. Right? right. And just abandons and stuff. So he's yeah. So he's he's a he's a bad guy. Yeah. They're, this was, a, this was a brutal movie in a lot of ways. I think yeah. people are going to be surprised at the language in it and at the the one-liners and the language and some of the, right. the throwaway, a, uh, throwaway things that are said. You know, Like right. Archie's talking about uh, his mother had narrowed it down to three potential people that could be his father. And one of them was a, a stableman, I think. One of them was something else. And the third was a guy in a mask that she met at a bar who threw her skirts up and then the girl he was with said she he ravished her or she was ravished and he said no surprised at best
1: just
2: <laughs> mean spirited yeah. stuff you know yeah so, so yeah so when he he gets his due you're very pleased right you're very right. happy
1: yeah it, it and that's quite a shot that's quite <laughs> yes. a shot the end of that fight scene is quite a shot i won't ruin it yeah. for you if you haven't seen it but uh that is a uh, a nice piece of of special effects and uh you 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 really need to watch rob roy. This is all five of these films are extremely important yeah. and you you really need to watch rob roy. And and now uh the last film that we're going to talk about is 13th warrior. 13th The 13th Warrior is uh a terribly interesting film made from a terribly interesting book written by Michael Crichton now this is another William Hobbes sword choreography job and it's it's real real good it's real good the the what is the best thing about this movie is the fact that when Michael Crichton wrote this book and Crichton was really interesting author he was a doctor and he was you know had three or four advanced degrees and was was extremely admittive and and lots of his books take a completely different take on a story that you already know and the this thing was was made from his novel called the eaters of the dead and uh the, the thing was shot in '99, and I think the book came out in the middle or early '80s. Called *The Eaters of the Dead*, and *The Eaters of the Dead* was Michael Crichton's retelling of the story of Beowulf. And in fact, the the character that was that was the the lead character in the in the thirteen warriors was called Buñuel.
2: Antonio Banderas, right?
1: No, Antonio Banderas was the Arab.
2: He I'm was sorry a little, about that.
1: He, he was a little Arab. The the boulevard was played by an actor called Vladimir Kulich, and uh, and they had a band of warriors, right? And this is the same. This is a you know this goes back to yeah. Seven Samurai. It's a band of warriors that are called upon to do a job, and in this case, the job is for. Uh, a chieftain, a king up in somewhere in the north. This thing is shot in British Columbia, but it's it's supposed to be in Denmark someplace. And British Columbia is a nice stand in for Denmark. And they built a, a mead hall on one of the mountains back there. It, it, it was, it's a beautiful film.
2: There's a bunch of set pieces that are very interesting. Yes. So, so a movie, if a movie flows... But, you, you get over the fact that it's just a bunch of individual sets that tell a much broader story right, right. Because you can't see the whole story there. Well, it so- starts
1: off in the uh, Middle East and it proceeds to uh, somewhere on the Volga River and then it, and then these guys are, are you know recruited to do this job and then the thing shifts to uh, the open ocean and then they go to I mean these are the Vikings. This is a Viking movie and uh but the the interesting thing about the story was the was the fact that that Crichton was retelling Beowulf and what was going on here was that was Crichton's interesting assumption that Grendel mm-hmm. the the bad guy in the Beowulf tale
2: mm-hmm.
1: was a Neanderthal a right? Neanderthal that's
2: right was yeah, yeah, a
1: yeah. remnant There were his, his contention here yep. was that there was a remnant population of homo neanderthalensis yes in one of the forests up in the up in northern yep. europe and that uh these people were completely different than we were and uh and uh this explained a whole bunch of things about the about the beowulf tale
2: now, now, that did, that translation didn't come through in the movie so much. No, it did not. Different, no, different you're
1: different. absolutely right. It did not yeah. come through in the movie at all. I had read the book prior to uh, seeing the film, and I was disappointed because that was a terribly interesting aspect of the story, is that yeah. uh, Crichton speculated that there was a remnant population of, of Neanderthal men, and that that would explain the enormous physical strength of Grendel and and uh his barbaric habits and stuff about you know killing and eating people and all this other stuff but they didn't they didn't even go there in the film they didn't go there i don't know if it was a time thing or what but but during the shooting of the movie uh john mctiernan started off as the director of this film and michael crichton is executive producer and producer and was on the set for the whole thing. He wrote the screenplay and and was intimately associated with the film. Well, they somebody got crossways with McTiernan. He's still listed as the director on on the Wikipedia page. But what actually happened was they had to they had to reshoot a bunch of stuff for one reason or another. And Crichton came in as the acting director and. And had, in other words, he had the opportunity to insert that plot element into the into the script, and he didn't do it. And I don't, we don't know. know. What,
2: we don't know what happened. So, so everything you look at when you're making a movie, you've got investors, you've got money, you've got test screenings, you've got dailies that people look up and decide whether this is going the right direction or not. If you've got a very powerful director, they can force their vision through, right? Mm-hmm. Or if you got a very powerful actor, they can force what they want through as well. But when you're dealing with these guys, I mean, uh, if I think that they ran into some snags and they didn't quite know how to fix them. So mm-hmm. when you have shoots and when you have all that sort of stuff, that's always an indicator. So if there's a degree of, of a lack of flow in this movie... I think it's because it's that. I think it's that disjointed thing going could, on.
1: Like, could very well be. There were some problems with the flow uh, of the film. Once they get up to the the castle where they're going to work, where the guys at the King's Lodge is under attack by these people, and you know they had there was it's kind of choppy at some points through there, but uh, it is uh, it is not so choppy that you can't. Appreciate just the this. This is a hero tale. So what's this impressive a, about
2: this? Movie this is an. This That these guys, not only did they not mind putting their life at risk, they looked forward to being done. They, yes. if they, you know, the the one character sitting there, knows he's getting ready to go down. He goes, "Today's been a great day, right?" Today's yes. been a great day. So, right. so, that that sort of perspective. So, uh, we we're talking about Sam, uh, samurai movies earlier. Uh, when I first uh, started traveling, there was certain books you had to read: the Code of the Samurai, the Book of Five Rings, the Art of War. Those were mm-hmm. those were books that you had to read, right? And then you had to get them. So, the Code of the Samurai has got a line in it about uh, your duties only to die, right? So, that character trait came across in these these Vikings, right? they they were delighted when one of their guys died not only could you make fun of him when he died because you knew that he was in he was in a better place and he'd earned that place right so they carried that with them in the in the battles and they carried it in between scenes and that's not always an easy thing to pull off if you will
1: remember the line uh play uh, that was that was delivered by the character herger uh, played by dennis storhoi norwegian actor uh he says to uh, Arab. He says to the Arab. He says uh, Ibn Fatalan was the Arab's name, and he says to him, uh, "There's, you know, they're they're laying in the floor in the yeah. lodge, waiting on the attack, mm-hmm. and uh, the, Ibn Fatalan says." why are you guys all asleep we're about to be attacked by these these crazy people and and he says look you don't you don't understand your fate has been decided a long time ago and what will happen is going to happen and you have no input into the situation so you might as well just relax and just enjoy the next few minutes (laughs) right right and right. it, you remember that little scene? And, and that's yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. the fatalism of the barbarian. Right. And uh, uh, it's it's uh, it's comforting if you can actually think that way, isn't it?
2: It's very comforting. So when yeah. they're, they're they're calling it, there's a big scene. Number one is uh, Antonio Bandas is there, there. He says, I'm not a warrior and he's still there willing to fight and do whatever's right. necessary. So the fact that he's got the, the guts to even be there in this room, you know, with right. Him, right? And then the and then the second part of that is after the fight's over and they lose a couple guys, uh, they're joking about, well, maybe in Valhalla he'll he'll be rejoined with his head or something. Yeah, you know, just, yeah.
1: They just always take like the
2: hits.
1: Yeah. They always take the heads. <laughs> yeah,
2: but it, it was a good movie. The uh, I enjoyed it. I, I didn't know how was gonna, uh, if I was going to enjoy it, but it had enough interesting lines in it, and then the set fight pieces were really well done. That cave sequence, yes. when those guys are going into the cave, and they're looking forward to going into this cave, knowing that all these maniacs are in there, and right. they almost can't wait to get in there, right? Right. They can't yeah. just. Can't wait to get in there and fight yeah. you know that's it a completely really, really different really
1: perspective than most people have yes and that's exactly uh, right. yeah it it was uh you know and and but the end scene when boulevard gets killed yeah yeah. and the way that is presented you know this man is dying yes he's dying been but poisoned. he been is poisoned. going to take these people out with him he's been poisoned in the cave yes. The poison is working. He's weak, and he knows he's dying, and yet he leads the fight.
2: He, and he knows he's dying, and all the rest of them got a pretty good handle on the fact that they're going to die too, right? Right. They, they they think that, and then his he's got his dog with him, and uh, yeah, and, and he's out there, and he can barely stand, but he's still fighting. All that's uh, it was really well done.
1: And then really, they, really. they 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 the finish up the fight and he goes up and sits in the chair yes yes and then the dog howls that's right and the shot comes over and here he is pale sitting in the chair with his head up sword across his lap dead yes okay now there is no more stirring a picture oh yeah for the western man's mind that is, that, that fabulous. That,
2: that was part of the reshoots. That was part of the reshoots. That was part of the reshoots to make yeah. that happen. So that yeah. was Crichton who did that. As I read it, that's who it was. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it probably was because that that piece of visual imagery is that's that's probably the most memorable thing in the film. Is that <laughs> but, is that picture of that dead hero on the, on the throne.
2: So when they take a character that they keep referring to as the Arab and he's our perspective into this world, when they're able to make that character relatable enough that it provides us a, a, a viewpoint for this world, that's not easy stuff to do No. So, so they made him, um, Antonio Banderas made that very clear for us. It was very well done. Uh, it, uh, and he, he, there's a scene where he's looking at him there. Everybody's looking at him there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all really good. It's all really good stuff.
1: Yeah. And the, the amazing thing about this film is how it got the shit kicked out of it by the, by the reviewers.
0: You know, I, 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 I it, it almost
1: makes me think that if, you know, if, a, if a
2: film gets a
1: whole bunch of real good reviews, it's probably not worth watching.
2: So here's what, you, here's what I've discovered is that film review sites for the most part are co-opted. They they have other agendas other than talking about the merits of a film. So there might be a few honest ones out there, but for the most part, you're not getting, you're not getting honest reviews about stuff. Uh, and you can see the swing in politics from them. I, I don't want to talk yeah. about politics. The, the, the film review sites aren't honest. Uh, you're better off if you, if you view the film on its own merits. Um, the, uh, this film wasn't a perfect film. However, uh, you can't discount the fight scenes. The narrative was easy to follow. It was not a a confusing narrative, right? He never became the... His character was never meant to be the best fighter there or or the great tactician. He was just our viewpoint into this world. And they made you care about the characters, even though a lot of them didn't have many lines. You didn't see much of them, but they made you care about the characters. I mean, that's what else is a movie supposed to do.
1: Yes, it was, uh, there were some holes in it. It's not a perfect film like Kingdom of Heaven, which is a perfect film. Uh, There were some holes in 13th Warrior, but if you cannot be entertained by 13th Warrior, you have a completely different perspective on... Things than I do.
2: Some and people don't enjoy people that are people, tough and capable. They, that's they don't. Absolutely
1: true. They 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 feel threatened by people like that.
2: They feel threatened, and they they like they like weakness, and they like feeling if, sorry for themselves. And if anything on screen is is presented as not weakness, they resent it.
1: Right. And that's that's, that's just this what is, it is this. The, if you're that way, this film is not for you. But neither like are the rest either. of them either. So,
2: no, absolutely not.
1: All of these top five things that we do uh, is just our best guess, right? You're gonna have if you're a big sword movie fan, you're gonna you're gonna be yelling at us. You go, what about blah blah blah? You know, and it's and it, that's that's fair, you know. Yes. These we talked about this quite a bit before we got to this this list, and uh, these are the ones we settled on, but. You can listen to our analysis of this and apply it to your particular favorite sword film and see if you agree with us in terms of the reasons why we included these in this list. We a sword movie's got to be believable in terms of the in terms of the fencing and the sword work. That's why we didn't go back to Errol Flynn, right? right. You know, uh, a sword movie's got to be it has to have a quality script. You know, it has to have a quality script, and that's why we settle on these things. It's, it's you know, there's, it's got to be a good movie, right? And for it to be a good movie, it's got to be well-written. It's got to be logical. It's got to the, the the treatment of the characters has got to be substantial enough to, to retain your interest in watching the film. And, uh, and
2: the sword work has got to be realistic-looking, Right. So at, at some point revisit Last Samurai with Tom Cruise.
1: Yeah, I will. It, I need to dig. De- I need I to dig that out.
2: Uh, the uh, the training sequences and the uh, dedication to the to the wardrobe, the, the weapons, the the scenery, uh, uh, the scale of the battles. It's all very very impressive stuff. It's uh, it's pretty accessible uh, now. They. Um, they they promote a lifestyle that they they show a lifestyle that we've talked about with all these other movies about the heroes willing to do what needs to be done. Uh they didn't finish the movie to what I would consider its natural conclusion, but it's still it's still got a pretty good ending. Still pretty good. Uh but it it's worth watching. You'll you'll enjoy the I think you'll enjoy it more on a second visit than you did the first yeah
1: time that's the time. last samurai with Tom Cruise. Yeah. And yeah. uh yeah, there are uh Oh, there are so many good Japanese sword movies out there. Uh, yeah. It's you can get that's a, a that's a entire genre unto itself and it's it you know, we may have fucked up even putting that into this even starting into 7 Samurai for this for this uh deal, but I, you know, I it would be hard to take a The subject of sword movies, seriously, if Seven Samurai wasn't included in it, but um, I'm I'm almost intimidated enough by Seven Samurai to have left it out, but it just, you know, in the end, we decided, no, we're gonna look like idiots if we don't put it in, so.
2: It's been studied by It's been studied on so many different levels that it's hard to feel like you're gonna bring something new to the table. The only thing that we might bring to the table is it might expose it to an audience that hasn't seen it before right that's the only thing
1: well and that's kind of why we do all of these things you know yeah. uh, every one of these shows that we've done has featured uh films that you have probably not seen or probably even not even heard of before we brought them to your attention and those of you that watch this podcast kind of you know y'all are kind of on our side here you know yeah nobody's going to put up with our shit if they're kind of at least don't think kinda like we do and and as a result of that our our uh, forays into these into these film topics may open up uh uh the the possibility that you are gonna order one of these things that you hadn't seen before and you're gonna enjoy it. That's what we hope happens.
2: Right. You know right. that's perfect. That's right.
1: So well John I appreciate your being here with us today with our friend John Musser who is uh uh Our guest on these on these movie shows and uh i uh this this particular genre of film is important to me just personally as a as a kid that grew up with a sword in his hands or wanted to anyway (laughs) and uh and uh watching these lets me kind of get away And I really enjoy them. John, thank you much for for being with us today on the show. And uh, thank you for watching us here on Starting Strength Radio.